Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. No question, December 15th is a key date. I'd also mention in there, John, and you've uh, had real leadership on this, Madame Lagarde, with some real key decisions towards the end of the week. With that, and maybe to migrate away from the politics of the moment, we are thrilled at Queen Victoria Street to bring you Alberto Gallo. He is with Algebras, uh, with Lisa Bramowitz and John Farrow in uh, New York. Alberto, good morning to you. Uh, let me start with an open question, given the news flow John just spoke about. How are you positioned in the year end? Are you in full Gallo vacation mode? Are you actually trying to find Alpha towards the end of the year and into January? Good morning, Tom, Lisa, John. Can you get up closer on the mic, please? Yeah, good morning. There you go. So the the market has um, moved from fears of um, meltdown, as Lisa was saying earlier, in September and October, to fear to to hopes of a melt up. The melt up has happened. Now we're in a fear of missing out mode. Investors are afraid of right. um, missing the gains. Um, there is a consensus about a an extension of the tariffs on the fifteenth. Uh, there is some consensus about a soft Brexit. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So we're more cautious. Uh, we've taken profits on things that we owned during the year. Uh, and we are looking at, we're increasingly looking at things that could go wrong and, and uh, areas of the market which are overvalued. Right. Um, I think in the UK, the market underestimates the execution risk of a soft Brexit, even if the Tories win. And also the market underestimates a quick US-China, um, you know, underestimates the difficulty of, of making a US-China phase one deal, because also the Trump administration needs uh, a phase one deal to play negotiation throughout the next year, right. to use it as well, a bait into elections. I want to go to John with his great knowledge on the credit market versus the full faith in credit uh, market. But Alberto, very simply here, are there bubble characteristics in fixed income, as some would suggest we see in equities, because the central banks have imparted that huge urgency to put cash to work. We are investors in a manipulated market. So if you think about government bonds, uh, definitely yields are too low. Real yields, look at the UK, real yields uh, are very negative. Inflation is at two and a half, three percent. You know, yields are below one percent for gilts. Uh, so there's there's hardly value in sovereigns with a few exceptions like treasuries in the US, Canada, Australia, areas where central banks can still cut. Um, at the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, if you look at private debt, loan funds, CLOs, uh, you you have a similar picture. Actually, uh, investors are trying to get away from mark to market, and the size of private debt funds has doubled in the last one and a half years. So where we operate is in the five to ten percent of the bond market, which is still trading at positive yields, mm -hmm. um, and we think there's value there. But you have to be very careful because many of the positive yielding bonds are. Are, could be zombies, companies that have survived because of, a, of an era of low interest rates. And some of them fall down. QE is no longer lifting all boats. This year we had a crisis in Argentina, a crisis in Lebanon. You know, Thomas Cook, very large UK retailer, uh, going into restructuring, many names in high yield in the US, ending up uh, 
upside down uh, yeah, for the same and, reason. And John, that destroyed my vacation to the Algarve that I was scheduling for January. Well, let me tell you, Alberto's going to have one hell of a vac- vacation after bonus season. Alberto Gallo's Algebris Macro Credit Fund is up more than 22% for 2019. Alberto, that's a massive year in fixed income. And more broadly, credit has really, really delivered on the year in both Europe and in the United States as well. The big question that I'm hearing again and again and again is whether you should trim some of your winners and rotate some cash into some of the losing areas of the market. What do you do, Alberto, after you've had the year that you've just had? This year, uh, a lot of the returns, especially in the first half, were driven by duration in the market and by what you know what you would call safe credit companies that are not too levered. Um, the really junky companies, the single Bs and the triple Cs, haven't rallied until the last few weeks. Now we're seeing uh, investors that were behind um, essentially reaching down the capital structure, down the rating quality to buy companies that are you know, over five times levered. They don't have equity. Uh, sometimes they're privately owned. They have a, you know, flat or negative free cash flows. And these are, you know, these are potentially zombies. So we are a bit more cautious when people reach down the barrel of the rating quality. Um, we, we really need a growth upside for these parts of the market to perform. So we're cautious um, and we are trimming risk. Uh, we're still positive that we're going to potentially have you know a year-end rally, a January rally, but we are not uh, seeing the cheapness that we saw a year ago. So we're a lot yeah. more cautious and we have dry powder uh, with the political volatility of next year. We think there'll be there'll be better entry points. Yeah, I love the word zombies, by the way. Zombie companies is one of my favorite terms. I will say there was a story in the Financial Times this morning uh, about a number of big bond firms, PIMCO among them, CQS, and uh, Hafen Capital Management, all raising special opportunity funds that have structures like private equity funds to go into companies, buy up some of this distressed debt that you were just talking about, and actually work with the companies to restructure them. Do you see an opportunity there too? There is an opportunity, but let's remember distressed funds um, are out of out of business mostly because there was no distress in the last 10 years because interest rates were very low so we need some shocks to the market uh, and we'll probably have them next year to create these opportunities for example one shock could be u.s elections if you see uh, a lead by the democrats then some um some sectors like energy or healthcare could be due for a big disruption. Uh, similarly in the UK, depending on who wins elections uh, this week. So there is a lot of sectors uh, which are um, still you know, running an old business model. They've survived because of low interest rates. Uh, and as soon as the economy shakes up a bit, these companies need to restructure their debt. So th- there is yeah. there's an opportunity there. Over time, we need a catalyst to make this happen. Alberto, this has been wonderful. And as John mentions, just, just, you know, what we know with you, with your excellence, it's not once in a lifetime, but that's superb, superb performance this year. Far out distancing so much what we see in fixed income and certainly in the hedge fund world. Mr. Gallo is with Algebras. For many people, the outlook at the moment is still finely balanced. The U.S. consumer is still very resilient. See payrolls last Friday. The global outlook still just a little bit soft. You can see the Chinese export data. That story told pretty clearly over the weekend. Overall, we haven't totally shaken off these trade jitters. Tuesday's bond market action 
a real reminder of that. To weigh in on the outlook on the remainder of the year into 2020, I'm pleased to say that joining us from New York on the phone is Cathy Jones, Charles Schwab Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Good morning to you, Cathy. Good morning, John. What are you telling clients going into year end as the happy talk about 2020 is already in full swing? Yeah, our outlook is that there's some room for rates to move up uh, as we get into 2020, and that's assuming we do get some sort of a trade deal, even if it's just a kick the can down the road kind of thing, where we don't impose increase in in tariffs uh, as of next week. Uh, or this week, I guess, with the decision would have to be made. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing a pretty resilient economy, maybe a little bit of an uptick in inflation expectations. So we could see the 10-year yield getting up to about two and a quarter next year. Why? How? I mean, in other words, is it going to be inflation? Is it going to be real yields? What's this going to be driving the increase? Um, we think it will be a little bit of inflation expectation picking up that uh, the strength in the labor market is exceeding expectations. We have very, very low inflation expectations now. If you look at the five-year, five-year forward rate, it's well below 2%. Just a little bit of a pop there could get us up to 2% plus in the 10-year. Again, we're not looking for a huge rise in yields. We're just looking for a return to a recapture of some of the um, decline in yields that we saw last year. So what did you make? of Friday's price action. We had a blowout payrolls report in America, Cathy, and yields on a 10-year ended the, ended the day higher by a couple of basis points at 183, 184. That, to me, is not a market that's thinking about a better economy translating into higher yields. You know, that's absolutely true. Um, I think it's muted by the fact that we still have the ongoing trade conflict going on, and nobody really wants to take a position ahead of that. Um, and we also had, even though, you know, the jobs report was strong, the wage gains were still pretty moderate. So there's not this inflation expectation building up from a tight labor market. And there's no prospect that the Fed's going to change policy anytime soon. Kathy, can you give a narrative to 2019? Is what we saw in the bond market, the incredible rally in duration, really due to decreasing expectations of growth and inflation? Or is this all due to increasing stimulus from central banks? And I'm wondering, uh, you see the Fed expanding its balance sheet by more than $300 billion and the ECB uh, continuing to buy bonds. Yeah, you know, I think that certainly both factors uh, worked on the market, but I think the ample liquidity and the easing from central banks was the major driver. I mean, we had huge cuts from the Fed. We've had huge cuts from other central banks. We've had increased liquidity. And then on top of that, you have the narrative that the economy was, the global economy was really much softer than people believe coming into the year. I think when you look back at where we started last year, where we were a year ago in the fourth quarter, uh, things are very much different today than they were then. So, so we had a lot of room for rates to come down. So let's look forward uh, to this week when we have the Fed, we've got the ECB, we've got perhaps a little bit more foresight into what their plans are for 2020. If they just stay put, I'm talking about the Fed mainly here, is that going to be enough to keep driving the fixed income rally without, let's say, some positive upside surprise due to trade agreements? I think you're not going to see the kind of duration rally that we saw this year. I mean, it's almost impossible to get a peak to trough move of 100 basis points or so unless we're going into a global recession. And I don't think we're going into a recession. So I think that being on hold allows you know returns to be positive, but more in line with coupon income than with some big gains in duration 
or a lot more spread tightening from here. So we have a positive outlook for next year in terms of total return, but mostly driven by coupon income, not the factors that drove the market in 2019. Kathy, I want to wrap up with a question that no doubt we'll be asking all of our guests through this week as we count you down to December 15th and that trade deadline. Big line in the sand. What are you telling clients about it? Um, Well, you know, we think the most likely outcome is either um, a delay of additional tariffs and more talk or some sort of, you know, phase one light agreement, um, simply because it's in everybody's best interest for that to happen. But, you know, this is is probably the most unpredictable policy factor right now in the U.S. Kathy Jones, great to catch up with you, Charles Schwab, Chief Fixed Income Strategist. One of the best guests we could possibly get on this program to break down the oil market. Jeff Curry joining us in New York. Goldman Sachs International Global Head of Commodities Research. Good morning to you, Jeff. Good morning. Before we get into the commodity market, I just want to get my hands around this December 15th trade deadline and what you guys are telling clients at the moment about it. How are you characterizing it? Is it a line in the sand? Is it a firm deadline? Just how much risk is around that date? Well, in terms of thinking about our space... You know, the, the impact is relatively limited. It really impacts the agriculture markets to the most extensive extent. You know, there's a lot of noise right now whether or not this is going to lead to improvement in soy demand. But I think the key point there is that you have structural issues going on, and the trade war is exacerbating these structural issues. It's not so much the cause. Let's take, for example, let's say if they were to increase the demand for soybeans, Asian swine flu has taken out the demand because there's no more hogs who actually consume the soybeans. That's more of a structural problem. Um, you look across the commodity space, it's much more structural issues that are plugging it. Which, and, and sort of uh, embedded in that question is a supply-demand dynamic, right? And that's a demand side a question where, in other words, if you get an amping up of the, of the trade wars, that potentially lowers demand. Is that the right side of the equation to be looking at in terms of oil prices? Or should we be looking more at the supply side? Much more at the supply side. And what we're seeing is a substantial drop off in CapEx. And again, I'm going to argue that's much more structural than being driven by the trade war. With shale players or big? With shale players in particular. You look at the rig counts in the U.S. They've been in a steady decline since December of last year. Um, And that reflects, one, is that these companies still have structural problems, poor returns, too much debt. Uh, But also you think about the trade war exacerbated. And the other big factor that's coming into play is ESG investing. Um, You know, we estimate that in uh, 2020, $45 trillion of assets under management will integrate ESG strategies into the portfolio. What's the two lowest hanging fruit? Fossil fuels and metals and mining. How can fossil fuels be within ESG. They've tried to manage the social message. How do they actually manage a strategic plan to be ESG sensitive five or 10 years from now? Well, you look at the um, the big oils in Europe, they've basically reinvented themselves as big energy, incorporating renewables, power, and other more sustainable energy sources. Biofuels are added into that mix. Um, so they're doing that um, in a way to be able to attract that capital back into the sector. Um, but when you look at the shale players in particular, um, they don't have that kind of optionality. I'm not going to blame it all on ESG. Shale yeah. players, you know, too much leverage. Um, 
bad returns right. and you know not a great future. Jeff, you know, you taught microeconomics at, at Chicago, which is an immense honor and also really rigorous as well. Give us the rigorous single point microeconomics of the oil price that Saudi Arabia needs. What's their best oil price right now? Well, in terms of thinking about what they can control and what they can't control, they can control the shape of the forward curve. They cannot control the price level. And the agreement they came to on Friday really exemplified that understanding. Because what they did is they did a much deeper but um, sharper um, shorter term cut which is telling you that they're going to deal with that near-term surplus. They even went as far as to create a threat to any cheaters so that it's be successful. But the third and most important aspect of, the, of that cut is they didn't offer an extension and they didn't talk about the future. Oil is a spot asset. It's not an anticipatory asset like financial markets. So having a focus on forward guidance is really not necessary. Focusing on cleaning up the front end is really important. And that's what they did, which increases the backwardation. And we raised our price target to $63 a barrel on Brent from um, 60 really driven by that backwardation. Well, let's talk about that threat from the Saudis. Walk us through that threat, Jeff. And what do you think that threat is credible? Well, when you look at who was cheating, it was um, Iraq, Russia, um, Nigeria, and Kurdistan. And what we've seen so far for the month of November, both Iraq and Russia have got their numbers back down in line with, with their quotas. But I think it's also a broader threat to the rest of the peripheral of, of OPEC that, hey, they, they do have the capacity and they're willing to do it um, as we go forward and that their ability... Um, to manage the front end because they've actually been the leaders in terms of cutting back on the front end. You know, they're running 400,000 barrels a day below their quota. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the outlook going forward, because it's not a long-term commitment here, it's like, hey, let's balance these near-term surpluses. It becomes much more easy to um, create a credible threat. You live and breathe this market. I don't. So just naively, I'll say from my perspective, from the outside Looking in, I was surprised about the absence of a conversation around Saudi Aramco in Vienna, Austria at the OPEC meeting. Can you really draw a distinction between a Saudi Arabia that joins OPEC Plus to manage an oil price and a Saudi Arabia that needs to manage the price of its crown jewels listed in Riyadh? Yes. Look at what oil equities have done since 2015. Actually, do you realize oil equities on a level basis are lower today than what they were in the troughs of 15 and 16? Oil price is, you know, 63, the oil price is 26 then. Um, and I, you know, I tell this to our equity analysts, does the oil price really matter? Yeah, it does in a long-term sense. And I think this goes back to my point. What did the OPEC plus members do um, this last on Friday? They separated that long-term view from the short-term view. Um, oil price is a spot asset. Equities are an anticipatory asset. What they did on Friday was not going to change those expectations on forward oil prices. However, it could rebalance the market and help near-term cash flows. We go. I absolutely agree. You need to disconnect the two. And if the markets aren't a testament to the fact that oil price can do what it wants and the and you know the equities can do it. Another thing I can point out: equities do not have an arbitrage condition. Oil prices do. They're arbitrage to the real supply and demand today. Equities can do whatever they want based upon expectations. That's a whole different discussion. So, Jeff, you were just saying that, Brent, uh, you're expecting it to go to $63. It's currently $56.57. Where do you see WTI going? It's $58.51 right now. I'm almost right on where it's trading right now, basically at 58 But that's not the story in oil. The story in oil is the shape of the forward curve. It's the returns where you, um, 
you know, we expect to see 20% returns in being long oil with this thing trading flat over the rest of the year. One thing, one thing that I want to follow up on when you say that you're expecting CapEx to decline over in the shale patch, I'm wondering, do you expect the fate of those companies to improve? We've seen the, uh, the bankruptcies really increase. Do you think that that will just continue or do you think that we're starting to see a bottom? Well, I think when you look at what has to happen in that sector, you need to see consolidation. Um, I like to point out the top five oil companies in the U.S., um, they represent 80% of the market cap, but only a third of the production. The other 50 mm-hmm. companies that represent the other um, 80% of the market cap is where all the growth is, and it's uneconomic. Um, so what likely has to happen is you have to consolidate those companies. I like to point out, when yeah. people make the point about the CEO confidence numbers being down, it's because there's too many old company CEOs versus the very few new company CEOs, and a lot of consolidation needs See, to happen that, on the old company. It's my birthday, and Jeff Curry goes to the old CEOs at the old companies as well. Jeff, very quickly here on gold, uh, Goldman Sachs talking about a lift. When do we see a lift on gold? Well, we argue it's going to be real steady across the the course of 2020. I think one of the biggest factors driving our bullish view is the de-dollarization. We're seeing that across the central banks, particularly the the emerging market central banks. They're physically buying gold. We expect 750 tons of physical gold buying in 2020. Um, and that's going to be driven by de-dollarization. Jeff, super smart. Always great to get your insight. Jeff Curry there, Goldman Sachs International Global Head of Commodities Research. A Fed decision this Wednesday, an ECB decision coming up on Thursday and a big trade deadline coming up on Sunday as well. And in between all of that, sprinkled in between, we get some decent amount of economic data in America, including U.S. retail sales, Lisa, coming up this Friday. Yeah, with a lot of uh, data. The question is, how should traders uh, position ahead of that? Constance Hunter joining us now, KPMG chief economist and NAB president. Uh, Constance, I'm wondering right now, the market's really ratcheting back expectations of even a 2020 rate cut, which had been basically a given uh, before we got the better jobs data, as well as a slew of other things. What do you think the Fed's really going to be signaling as far as their 2020 rate expectations this Wednesday? I mean, I think it's going to be more of the same. And I think one of the things that they have stuck to throughout um, the entire period where they have been hiking rates, and certainly since uh, Jay Powell became president, is this idea of symmetry. And I think this means that it is possible the Fed's reaction function um, and their tolerance for um, growth where we have inflation above the 2% target is higher than probably market participants expect. And so when we see a jobs data like this, uh, people tend to anchor to that and say, well, now they're not going to cut in 2020. I'm not so sure that that's the case. Uh, One month's job data does not a trend make. And so while that was extremely encouraging, um, I think we need to wait and see uh, what happens over the next several months. Uh, But you know, it's it's really, um, I think people anchor to the most recent data, and that's what we're seeing in the market. Okay, so if uh, if that means that you do expect another rate cut in 2020, what's the threshold, what's the tipping point for the Fed uh, to have an additional cut here after a, a series of strong data? It's not just the, uh, the, the, the retail sales, it's home sales, it's a number of other things too. Mm-hmm. Well, 
So I think one of the main reasons that they cut was weakness abroad seeping into the U.S. economy. Of course, the U.S. dollar and dollar funding is the uh, primary uh, engine for for liquidity globally. And so uh, by cutting rates, uh, the Fed not only improved liquidity conditions at home, they improved liquidity conditions globally. And of course, that had a feed-through loop. So I think it depends not just what's happening here, but how the feed-through of the global economy is going to impact the U.S. economy. What drives a path from 1.7, 1.8, subpar, negative 2%, below 2% GDP out to something decent? Call it 2.5%. What's the thingy that gets us there? Is it investment? Is it NX? Is it consumption? So I don't think that anybody is forecasting negative 2%. So if we look at this most recent survey, the very weakest uh, forecast we have is um, 0.1% for the whole of 2020. And when we work with our models and shock them, it's very hard to get it to have two quarters of negative growth. And it's really, we're talking about 0.9 or 0.5. So again, it's really important people not anchor to the global financial crisis and, and think about where we are now. And and you brought up the consumer. The consumer is extremely healthy, especially compared to the previous recession. And I think the the pain points are around um, corporate investment and productivity because the consumer has been the backbone of the expansion. And what what is lacking and what we need to maintain future growth is to increase productivity. Well, this is important. And folks, I misspoke there. I didn't mean negative 2%. I meant below 2%. Small difference. Constance, this is really important. Does productivity lead growth or does better growth lead to better productivity? Ah, you have asked the most important question. It's existential. Yeah, well, and it's and and both are correct, right? So when we have better growth, we see more investment. More investment tends to lead to uh, future productivity. But if there were some nice, neat formula that we could all just plug into our policy toolbox and voila, we bake a productivity cake, then Japan would have already done this, right? Um, but it, but it's not so straightforward, and it is a, an existential question in a way. Um, but they they do feed back onto each other. So obviously. Obviously, more productivity allows us to get more growth, and more growth uh, encourages firms to make more investment, which usually leads to more productivity down the road. Constance, I've got to wrap things up by asking you the uh, the tedious, boring question that will be asked of you through the week. December 15th, trade deadline. What on earth are you telling your clients? I just have never thought that they're going to make a breakthrough. And it's very possible they have this so-called phase one deal, which papers over a lot of the issues. But I think the chances are pretty slim. Constance Answer, always great to catch up with you. KPMG, Chief Economist there, joining us on the latest in the U.S. economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.